What's up, everyone? It's Chuck. We have a special episode for you today. John just got finished taking the bar, needed a bit of a breather, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, I did too. So for this week, we are sharing an interview we did for a recent episode of the podcast called The Outpost. The Outpost is an Appalachian-centric podcast devoted to telling stories of the region and its natural wonders. It's really cool. You should check it out. You should subscribe. We'll put a link in the show notes. Also, at the end of today's episode, we still have announcements and a big old beef with Big John that you won't want to miss. We have an update on our $100 drawing from our Patreon, as well as a handful of other things that you will really want to hear. So be sure to check that out. And with that, here is our crossover episode with The Outpost. Welcome to Volume 2, Episode 1. I'm your host, Andrew Spellman, Outdoors Writer at the Dominion Post, and I'm so happy to be kicking off the second season of The Outpost with a collaboration with one of my favorite podcasts, Apod Latcha. Hosts Chuck Cora and John Eisner are both great guys who care a ton, not just about their home state of West Virginia, but Appalachia as a whole. John, Chuck, and I all grew up in the same part of the state, the Mid-Ohio Valley, and have all spent time in the Eastern Panhandle and in Morgantown, so it wasn't hard to start on similar footing with these two, whom, prior to this, I've never really spoken to. In this episode, we kind of divert away from the typical hunting, fishing, and outdoors vibe of this podcast for a large portion before ending on the implications the New River Gorge designation has on sportsmen and women in West Virginia. The reason I chose to move away from the outdoor vibe of the podcast is simple. Appalachia and its inhabitants aren't always accepted, treated well, or given a fair shake by people outside of the region. There are many problems in this part of the country, many backward decisions being made or proposed by our legislators, etc., but Chuck and John are both very active voices on why the entire region shouldn't be crucified for that. We talk economic development, politics, agriculture, and more in this episode to allow people to hear and understand that there is a group of folks in Appalachia trying to change the narrative we've lived with for so, so long. So without further ado, let's get into it. John, Chuck, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Of course, of course. So this is the Appalachia meets the Outpost episode. Uh, You know, you guys have a very popular podcast out there uh you have a very popular presence i should say too um so in case people don't know who you are uh can you go ahead and give them a little bit of an intro yeah let chuck you usually do this a little better than i do we're just two guys you know just two (laughs) humble guys who had the naive idea one day i think when we were both drinking (laughs) that uh we would start a podcast um it's a little bit more than that, I guess. So we, I don't even remember how we worded on our website, but Apod Lashes started as an idea that was essentially born out of John's campaign. He ran for a, a house district, uh, like we were talking about before the show, and the Eastern Panhandle, West Virginia. After that, we we really, and I helped on that campaign, uh, managing it from afar, but we realized after that that we wanted to continue talking about the issues that were brought up in the campaign and broaden that scope. So we started a podcast about that, and it's really also kind of developed into a counter-narrative of the traditional, I won't say traditional, but the, the stereotypes and the negative perception of Appalachia in the mainstream media and the public conscience. The big thing was, um, you know, when we were going through that campaign, the, the whole purpose of it, obviously, like, 
going into where I was living at the time, I was living in Hedgesville, West Virginia. And if you don't know, it's a very, very conservative area of West Virginia. Uh, it, it was, it, uh, my race was nowhere on anybody's map to be close at all or to move any points. And Chuck and I, you know, we worked our asses off. You know, I, can I say ass on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys are You guys are, okay. you, guys are uh, you know, we worked our asses off for over a year on that campaign and uh we you know we obviously didn't win but i think we moved it 12 or 13 points which is an insane amount you know at at that point in time so uh, mm-hmm. we figured out that people liked at least what we were saying and uh you know we wanted you know we wanted to share or at least uh continue to to spout whatever we wanted to so that's why we we made a podcast for sure. Uh, before the show, we were also talking about how we're all born and raised West Virginians. Uh, you guys grew up 45 minutes away from me in Parkersburg, um, and you both went to Shepherd. So we're all uh, <laughs> the Mid-Ohio Valley and Eastern Panhandle here. Uh, you know, I lived in Jefferson County, like I told you, for about a year um, when I got my first writing gig out of college. Um, and John, you and I also have the same uh, WVU connection. Chuck, did you go to the WVU as well for grad school or did you just get your bachelor's? Um, no, I went there actually for my first two years of undergrad though, before transferring. Oh, to did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Similar gotcha. route so as John. we all have that connection too. Yeah. Yeah. We all spend some time in good old Morgantown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Cool. Um, so, you know, I know you talked about it a little bit, you know, can you, uh, your podcast. Can you tell me a little bit more about the voice that Appalachians needed and kind of the voice you're trying to give them? Yeah. I mean, in general, um, you know, obviously you and probably a lot of your listeners are Appalachian. So they've been, mm-hmm. they've been looked at in a certain light. They may have, uh, you know, for me, I, I remember I, I had an interview with a major sports, uh, corporation. I never say the name cause I would feel weird doing it. Um, but the minute that we started talking, uh, the first thing it, wanted... it was the Tennessee Smokies AAA baseball. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> damn it, Chuck. Sorry, got to edit that out. No, the minute that we started this conversation, it was apparent that they they needed me for a statistic on an app, you know, on, on, we checked the box that we interviewed a kid from West Virginia. It wasn't, they didn't take me seriously. And I think a lot of people Mm kind of get that, or they meet people who have this perception of them. Uh, And our whole goal was to say, wait a second, there are a lot of people in Appalachia who are, I mean, doing incredible things. There's, you know, they're going out, they're getting PhDs, they're getting law degrees, you know, they're doing huge things that people just, totally gloss over mm-hmm. while continuing to create this perception that Appalachians are, aren't smart or, you know, they're, they're not willing to do things, you know, they're lazy, which is, mm-hmm. which is not true at all. And I, I think that was really what it was. Nobody was providing that information um, and nobody was talking about the good things happening here. We still talk about the bad things, you know, obviously, um, but really nobody was giving light to the people who are working really hard every day to make Appalachia a better place. Yeah, I think we were particularly tired and and honestly pissed off at just how Appalachia and specifically West Virginia was portrayed and viewed by other people, especially nationally. I mean, 
people will often categorize states based on how they vote in the electoral college. And you'll always hear people say, oh, well, you know, West Virginians are all just a bunch of racists or they're all just a bunch of conservatives, yada, yada. Same Mm -hmm. can be said, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, that type of thing. And we were tired of that. And one thing that we really thought we could do to put a dent in that is bring a voice to the region um, with a heavy presence from West Virginia saying, hell no, we're not like that, or at least not all of Mm -hmm. us are like that. And in fact, here's what we think, here's what we believe. And we, in fact, have a lot of people that think similarly that you are discounting from where we are. And I think that's the biggest thing is so much of the people that we come in contact with that like the show, that follow us on social media, that are that are fans of us, they're like-minded and they were they wanted a voice like that too. And we just wanted to be that because we uh we were just sick of it. I mean, we've dealt with it our whole mm-hmm. lives. Yeah. No, I completely understand. You know, growing up in you guys growing up in Wood County can absolutely relate to me growing up in Ritchie County, you know maybe not so much on the rural side, even though Wood County is pretty rural in certain parts. And I was born in Doddridge um, County. Were you really? Yeah. My dad's from Doddridge. Yeah. Okay, so then I, you probably, I mean, we all understand what it's like to be in a position where um, someone from New York City might come down here and say, oh, look at all these hicks walking around. And, you know, um, you know, they they try and, what I've seen from outside media, you know, and I hate to say this, but just because I know what it's like on the inside is you look for things in certain people that you want to portray in a story. Um, As a sports reporter, it's completely like completely different for me because what I'm looking for is a kid that stands out in a game or a kid with a really cool story. Um, But I've seen it on MSNBC, CNN, Fox news, all the big wigs, you know, they're coming in here like, okay, who's, the person in this group that we can find that is the stereotypical West Virginian or Tennessean or Kentuckian. Yep. And uh, it's really irritating. And, you know, um, what I was going to say about, you know, our growing up, um, I think we all have pretty similar political ideologies. Um, I grew up in a very liberal family in the middle of a super, super red County. Um, You know, I didn't turn out completely liberal. I'm very moderate. But uh, I still hold on to certain liberal beliefs. And when people uh, meet me and they expect this Trump guy, (laughs) because I'm from Trump country, um, and, you know, I tote around a shotgun in the woods or, you know, I'm talking about on a video gutting a goose and they find out, hey, you voted for Biden. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He he doesn't fit the preconceived structure of a person I have in my head. It's like it's like they're complicated. That's yeah, that's. Yeah, it's very interesting to see how social media has certainly played a role in this uh, and has made these stereotypes, which we're going to talk about, about West Virginia and Appalachia and other, you know, southern states just, you know, exponentially worse. You know, we look at Georgia and SNL had this great bit about Georgia going blue. You know, it's still the... uh, the typical Georgia we know, but <laughs> I mean, just because they went blue doesn't mean that there still isn't this divide down there. But, um, you know, it, it was a look at, Hey, Southern States aren't just full of Trumpers or conservatives. Like there's a, it's split at least 50, 50. I mean, I think from the past elections we've seen, there is a 50, 50 divide in our country. And that doesn't mean that a state can be like that. Um, but I'm going off on a tangent. I completely agree with you guys. And it's, uh, 
hard to grow up in an area where these preconceived ideas are super pervasive. From listening to your podcast too, like I said before we started, John, I know it really irritates you (laughs) (laughs) when stereotypes come out. So with that, today we're going to talk about stereotypes. (laughs) We're going to talk about (laughs) uh, a focus on how West Virginia specifically can move towards better economic development opportunities. And we are going to talk about things like the New River Gorge. Um, just to kind of tie in the whole hunting aspect of this podcast. So without further ado, you know, like I just went off that spiel. Um, there are a lot of different perceptions about us. Um, not many of them are great. Um, so what are ways we can do better, you know, to show folks the stereotypes aren't real? And whoever wants to start, John, if you want to start, since I know this is something you talk about a lot, Chuck. Um, yeah, Chuck gets fired up about this too. I mean, it, this is something that I think everybody should get fired up about because absolutely, because it's yeah. one of those things. Like, if if you listen to our our podcast, right? Like, we we talk a lot about the things that are happening in Appalachia because to to me, you can't walk up to somebody right and say mm-hmm. your perception of where I'm from is wrong. Cause they're, they're not going to give mm-hmm. a shit. Right. So right. what right. you have to do is you have to prove it. That's the only mm-hmm. way that you can, you can, you know, destroy this narrative. And the big thing is if you remember, um, you know, West Virginia history, for instance, uh, or mm-hmm. even Appalachian history, if you think back to the early 1900s, even into, you know, 1920, 1930 Appalachians literally fought people for mm-hmm. for better working conditions and better pay killed them mm-hmm. literally yeah. literally they had war they yeah. had wars for this and now mm-hmm. fast forward to 2021 where not only are we exploited but now we're sticking up for the people who exploit us yeah but there are so many people who don't in Appalachia there, there's this mm-hmm. you talked about in Georgia there's this divide I think there's a divide in Appalachia too mm-hmm. but people aren't talking enough about the the groups in Appalachia who are doing amazing things for this region. There are a lot of young Appalachians who, you know, with the three of us who would agree on a lot of our politics or, you know, at least a lot of the things that we're saying and they don't get enough credit because Appalachia Mm -hmm. is seen as this like, you know, this older area where people go to retire or they've grown up there and they never leave. And the people who leave seek a better life, which some of that is true, but not all of it. And, and the whole Mm -hmm. goal here is obviously to, D- discuss stereotypes we we know that they exist we have to uh, you know develop a narrative against them we have to, uh, i think andy morrow she's a director she uh she was on our show uh, a little while ago she was talking about her film but she put it a great way she said appalachians need to stop letting outsiders control their narrative or tell their mm-hmm. story uh, that's exactly what we think too yeah, I, I think we to kind of build on on John's point. I think the Appalachians have to take back the narrative because it's been taken from us for so long, mm-hmm. forever, basically, and has been turned into something else. So mm-hmm. I think number one is you have to take back the narrative. That's something that we at a very small level right now are trying to do. And number two, you have to be a positive example that refutes and counteracts those stereotypes. There, you mentioned before, there, there's always going to be people in the media that are going to look for that. 
example that reinforces people's preconceived ideas about Appalachia. That's that's going to happen, and that's a hard force to push back against. So what we try to do is not only do we try to be examples of pushing back against that, but we also try to highlight others that are doing that as well. I think literally everyone or almost everyone we've had on our show is an example of that. And I think that's the biggest thing is when you're presented with, with a lot of different evidence that refutes the stereotype, it weakens it and, and eventually will kill it. That's what we try to do. And again, like it's not, I'm not trying to like say that our podcast has a humongous reach that can completely destroy stereotypes, but we're just trying to get that ball rolling. And that's the biggest thing because, you know, to your point about economic development, stereotypes hurt that. They hurt that a lot because people will have these preconceived ideas about Appalachia and not want to invest in it, not want to move there, not want to move their family to a place that seems strange and foreign and might be full of inbred cannibal hillbillies that don't wear shoes. Uh, and, and part of that is them needing to do their own research, but part of that is also <laughs> just fighting these these narratives that have been around so long have been just ingrained in the psyche of people throughout the country. I want to come back to young people leaving Appalachia uh, because it, it is a huge point with economic development. Um, and I, you know, I already, I think we're all on the same brainwave here because I definitely have that written down already. You talk about taking back the narrative. Um, you know, we can't rely on the outside media. And I don't mean to bring these names back up, but CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, um, you know, all the big TV stations. And I hate to say this. I mean, I've seen even local TV stations go for that easy target. Uh, oh, hell yeah, person. they do it all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we can't rely on outside media to change things for us. Like you're saying, we have to change it ourselves. But how do we do that? You know, you guys are taking on the communication side of it just like I am. We're trying to change the stereotypes that we mm -hmm. have and show, hey, we have really smart young people here. We have smart middle-aged people here. We have smart old people here. But, you know, it's easy to find that person in McDowell County that is the stereotypical poor person. Um, it's easy to find the, you know, stereotypical redneck in Logan County or mm -hmm. Ritchie County, you know, what be it. So what are ways that, you know, people like you guys and I and other young people who want to change this narrative, how do we do that and kind of force the outside people to see, hey, you know, maybe these big TV stations aren't telling the full story. Yeah. And I think this rolls in perfectly with movies too. Hillbilly Elegy, I still haven't watched it. I refuse to watch it. I read half the book and I set it down and I think I threw it away. Honestly, I don't have it here at least. Because big media doesn't like us. I mean, it comes down to it. They they like pushing the narrative that they've always pushed on us. And you guys have talked about it extensively. So um, yeah, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Well, I think one of the things that is being done right now that's really good to I think answer part of your question is that the the region and I'll use West Virginia as an example has to have people telling the story from within. A great news organization that started recently called Mountain State Spotlight is doing that. It's a yep. full of amazing reporters, Pulitzer Prize winners, who mm -hmm. have dedicated their life to investigative journalism and who are telling the story out of West Virginia of a lot of different things, of corruption, of poverty, mm -hmm. of, of kids who can't get meals. Like, there's stories that 
that are really important and that are starting to get national coverage because people who know the people are telling it, um, but they can also tell the good stories too. And they have been, I mean, you mentioned McDowell County uh, um, and it's always easy to find, you know, somebody that will fit a stereotype from somewhere like McDowell County. Well, the inverse of that is that you can always find somebody that's going to push back against that stereotype from a place like McDowell County too. I'll use Mingo County. There's a guy down in Mingo County. His name is Johnny Nick Hager. He ran for County commission, unfortunately lost, but he made it a point of saying, why the hell not Mingo County? Why aren't we selling ourselves as a place that should be invested in? And you know, it's a tough sell. It's a, it's a coal mining area of the state with very um, crumbling infrastructure. There's not a lot of investment to it, but he got out there and with such pride for his community and said, this is bullshit. We need to be selling ourselves and actually trying to bring people in and start pushing back against the bullshit corruption that has been plaguing the county. And so I think that is really the important thing is there's a voice everywhere, no matter how rural, no matter how red or whatever color your county is, there's always somebody that's going to be there that can provide a counter narrative to those stereotypes. It's a matter of finding them. And it's a matter of highlighting their voice. That's, that's the biggest thing. Cause for, for every case of a person reinforcing a stereotype, in my opinion, there are, at least twofold, threefold as many cases that can push back and be a counter narrative to that. People just need to find them and and need to tell those stories. Yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned young people and what what can they do? Big biggest thing, and I, I continue to preach this on our podcast, and I'll preach it here. You got to get involved. I mean, to me, that's the biggest thing. Uh, obviously, like you know, Chuck and I, we we currently like we work full time. We do this podcast, but you know, when we wanted to at least see some change or try to make change. We, we just made a podcast, right? Like we just started talking about the issues. That doesn't mean that other people have to do that. They can go out and join a a local group or a statewide group that's trying to make change in Appalachia. The thing that I see the most in, and I'll probably take heat for this, but that's fine. And a lot of Appalachians is we're always really tired of the stereotypes, but we're not doing anything about it. There, there are a lot of young people who get fired up about being stereotyped or talked down to, but then you're like, then you tell them about a group that's making change that they could go join. And they don't, you know, they're a little standoffish. And I know, you know, obviously Chuck and I are not super old, you know, he, we're both what late twenties, you know, not super old. And that's funny. It, I turned 31 this month. Thank you. I was trying to give you two years. <laughs> uh, hey, you're still technically a young entrepreneur for a few more months in West true. Virginia. All right. That's, well, no, for, for a year and some months. Okay. Uh, we got to get, we need to get that discount. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, the, the, the whole point is like, I, when I was in the Eastern Panhandle, um, I taught mm-hmm. at Shepherd. Right. So, okay. so I taught political okay. science and debate there. And a lot of the times, you know, the topics were, um, you know, very diverse and, and people had a lot of different, um, you know, perceptions on how things should be. But there was very little, uh, I guess, movement in trying to change things in the state, because mm-hmm. I, I know that the Eastern Panhandle is obviously like a really, you know, it's way more blue than other places. So maybe they don't feel like they need to but I've always kind of felt like young Appalachians are the only people who can make this change there. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see, you're not going to have a 70 year old person who's lived a certain way their entire life, just suddenly change. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And you have all these people who are like, you know, in their midlife, but 
they're working full time. They're not going to be able to join these mm-hmm. groups. So the biggest thing is young Appalachians have to get involved. If they want to start controlling the narrative, which I know they do, they have to work to do that. That you know, that's the biggest thing. And and that's what we hope to drive people to do. Mm-hmm. I want to push back just as a devil's advocate for a second, yeah. because there, you know, I have a lot of young friends and it's so funny to see like from these super red counties, these super blue kids come out of, right. Um, I have a really great group of friends from Ritchie County and Parkersburg who uh, have come out of these areas and they're like, no, we're tired of, you know, the drug crisis. We need legal marijuana, which is another topic I want to talk about soon. Um, You know, we're tired of, you know, the poor access to mental health care. Um, I've had friends that have gone to WVU and it's been such a culture shock for them that they've stopped school and might not go back or they're stuck in Morgantown working, you know, a minimum wage job. I mean, hell, like maybe I might get flagged for this from my own bosses, but, you know, I graduated from college and I'm working still above minimum wage, but it's not a livable Mm -hmm. wage. Um, If I was alone, thank God I, you know, have a partner who I, you know, who can support both of us on top of my income. And, you know, there's even teachers that can't support their families without their spouse. So, you know, it, I'm going to reel back into my point before I get off on, you know, the topic I want to talk about later. But, you know, the young people will always say, I want to do this, but the older people are holding me back. And I think we finally found a voice and, you know, a progressive voice, not a super progressive voice, you know, Steve Smith. So, you know, for the people that are out there thinking, you know, I really want to do this and I want to join this group or maybe I'm in this group and I want to make make change, excuse me but these old people are standing in my way. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them for that? Yeah, I can I can go first because I actually I've heard this criticism or I guess anecdote a lot. And uh, and I was I'm a was a big fan of Stephen Smith as well. I uh, full disclosure I donated a decent amount of money to his campaign, decent amount for for me I guess. And I think like focusing on him losing is missing kind of the broader point of what he did. First of all, he started a a movement in West Virginia that had never really been seen before, a legitimately progressive grassroots movement. And when you're starting something like that, you can't expect to have full-on victory the first time you do it. I mean, that type of infrastructure, what I mean by infrastructure is grassroots organizing, organizing people that are like-minded to get out and take action and vote and get others to vote. That type of infrastructure building hadn't been done Ever. So the fact that he started it is extremely important. And that's something that like, if you look at Georgia, that wasn't something that happened overnight. That was something that took decades, decades of Democrats losing and losing and losing by less and losing by less and making incremental gains. And it can be frustrating because you want like Stephen Smith's campaign was extremely inspiring. And it, it like what he did was bring a lot of people into that movement. But I think what's important is he got the ball rolling and there are successes that that came from that. I mean, you look at the local level, we talked about this with um, Corey Roman, a councilman out of Martinsburg that we had on our show earlier uh, in the year. You know, he's a, he's a guy who's progressive. He got elected in Martinsburg. Rosemary Ketchum, the first openly trans elected official in the state of West Virginia, a progressive in Wheeling. Both of them ran on the platform that Stephen Smith created. 
you know, we have like, even in our hometown of Parkersburg, I can't remember if Wendy Tuck ran on that platform, but she, she's a, a progressive that unseated a Republican on the city council. And it was, it's a race where like 1600 people total vote. So mm-hmm. you're talking low amount of votes, but high amount of importance and building that at a local level. And so I think mm-hmm. to kind of bring it back around, I would look at Stephen Smith as an example of a, of a massive success in showing the level of interest and level of hunger for that type of movement in a state as red as West Virginia. I mean, mm-hmm. you he had a lot of like grassroots donations like out the ass. And that's not just mm-hmm. like from people who throw somebody money. Like those are those are small dollar donations for people that believe in something and what they need to do next and what really everyone that's a progressive in West Virginia and outside of it needs to do is support that type of movement and build on it build on it because it takes time it's like west virginia is red as and it was controlled by democrats for a really long time and it flipped republican and it doesn't change overnight so i think like looking at that example and understanding that patience is important and it sucks and the younger we get the more impatient we are like as each generation goes on because we're used to an instant gratification society but that's the key to it. it I mean, it's not the mm-hmm. ideal answer, but I would look at Steven's example as one that's a great roadmap to go by. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. As a, um, I understand why you, you push back on it. I get it. Like, you know, and, and I guess as somebody who ran as a, a 26 year old person uh, who mm-hmm. lost an election due to, you know, people who uh, were much older than me that didn't like me from the start. They didn't like me because my age, mm-hmm. they didn't like me because my politics, you know, whatever it may be. The, the big thing is that I understand that there's this, you know, there's this roadblock, right. But, mm-hmm. but there was a roadblock for every generation. The, it, this sure. is not a new thing. So, it, sure. so when people, it, when people wanted better lives it didn't always start from the oldest individuals a lot of it started Mm -hmm. from the younger people who said wait Mm -hmm. a second why would i do this for 30 years you know why why don't we have this this labor revolution for and you you talked about it you know i get what you're going through i also like i have a law degree i make i make nothing i don't make a lot of money Mm -hmm. at all like there's a misconception Mm -hmm. that you get a law school you make a lot of money no not true Uh, that was one of the greatest lies we were ever told (laughs) biggest lie if you're listening you think (laughs) about going to law school you're not gonna make a ton of money just believe it uh but you know i have a wife who's who luckily uh is very successful attorney who makes enough money to where we get by right so i know what Mm -hmm. i know what other people are going through in west virginia and i know that those roadblocks are there and for me, uh, I just kind of look at it as if, you know, the, these roadblocks are not unmovable, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you, you want to talk about all these different, obviously Stephen Smith, great guy. He, I met him before he announced his campaign. He came to me, he said, you know, John, this is what I'm planning. You know, what do you think? And, and we had a conversation about it and, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but it was always an uphill battle for Stephen Smith. I mean, even right, in the primary, right. you know, I know that he had a lot mm-hmm. of hope going into it, but it was always an uphill battle and it, it's mm-hmm. no fault of his own. I mean, he tried, you know, mm-hmm. obviously he worked, he worked his ass off. He worked harder than any candidate in that race. Um, mm-hmm. But he was also the first person to run a campaign that was unionized. How many steps do you take before you have foot pain? Hi, it's Jonathan Cotton with a good feet store. And the truth is the battle between our feet and the concrete or asphalt usually winds up with our feet losing. Studies show that about 75% of people will experience some kind of foot pain 
by middle age. I found that out a number of years ago with plantar fasciitis, and I tried to remedy it with shoes and drugstore cushions that didn't work. Finally, I went to the Good Feet store, was personally fitted for arch supports, and I loved them so much, I bought the store. Without a plan to protect and support your feet, it is likely you could one day be one of the millions living with chronic foot pain. Don't wait until pain demands that you visit us. Stop by the Good Feet store today and let one of our trained arch support specialists fit you with your personal system of arch supports. The Good Feet store is located in Fairfax, Leesburg, Rockville, Baltimore and Hunt Valley, and in Annapolis in the Annapolis Harbor Center. For more information, go to goodfeet.com. Um, he he right. started that. That's a huge win in a state that used to rely on unions. That's a big... Still does. Well, it does, but we've started... The people who are not in the union have started kind of fighting against unions, which is really weird to me. Um, but to see that back in politics is refreshing, in my, you know, in my opinion. And it was done by somebody who didn't have the politics... You know, and really all of a sudden, well, I mean, he was facing, if you want to talk about roadblocks, I mean, he was facing all of them and, and mm -hmm. luckily, you know, he stuck with it. I, I don't think we're done with, you know, hearing from Stephen Smith, you know, and, and, and I don't think we're done, you know, hearing from West Virginia can't wait or West Virginia can't wait. But I think the mm -hmm. big thing is you just, you, you, I hate to say this cause I feel like an old man saying it, but like, you got to suck it up. Like, you, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I, I just say that from experience. Like I've been knocked down so many times from, from roadblocks in West Virginia to the point where like I've wanted to leave and I just kind of mm -hmm. go, I can't like, there's too, it's, there's too much here. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, there's, you know, a lot of Democrats have gotten scrutinized for saying this, but you know, we have to be tough. I mean, the GOP, <laughs> what used to be the GOP, because I used to be a part of the GOP sure. um, before I, you know, switch or got out of it was, you know, we don't take anybody's shit. We fight. And I think that's how West Virginia, you know, obviously I shouldn't say that's how, I mean, I think that's how, that is how West Virginia, you know, fought against the stuff they fought against or West Virginians fought against the stuff they fought against so many, you know, decades ago now, um, a century ago now, you know, we wouldn't have become a state if we would have just rolled over and dealt with Virginia, you know? So, you know, I think that's kind of a very basic, uh, response to what you guys are saying, but I completely agree with you. You know, even though I'm not a registered Democrat, you know, I think our Democrats are tough, um, they have to be, I mean, you have to be a tough Democrat and a red state because you're just going to get bullied and bullied and bullied and bullied. Um, and you have to be able to fight back against it. So I completely agree with that. But, um, you know, I want to move on here to our next topic. because I think we could talk about this all in itself for a couple <laughs> hours. Um, but you know, something that plays into the stereotypes and we talked about is poverty. Um, and especially poverty linked to our economic development model, um, are relying on extractives. You know, I've worked in the oil and gas industry on both the labor side and the administrative side. I was the guy who put together the reports after college of landowners who wanted to sell their mineral rights and landowners who didn't want to sell their mineral rights, but had their land, you know, their, their rights stepped on because 80% of the group wanted it. I think there was that push to get like 30%. Yeah. I think it was like super low or like that. I can't remember, but you know, I've worked on both sides of this and I also see 
you know, my family grew up in Doddridge County. The Spellmans grew up in Doddridge County. And my grandmother sold her mineral rights. And now she lives outside of Cincinnati on another farm because she couldn't handle the smell from the wells. Um, I think it's fair to say that the extractive industry has raped our state, whether it's mountaintop mining, whether it's the uh, irresponsible oil and gas drilling that we faced. Uh, you know, it seems to me like a lot of oil and gas companies have not been held accountable for the stuff that the problems that they create. Um, and that is coming from somebody who was on the inside and took the oil and gas money. And it's a regrettable time in my life, but it's one of those things, you know, there's only a couple options for West Virginians. Mm -hmm. Um, thank God I'm out of it. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, there's this push from West Virginia university, um, to begin changing the mindset around our economic development model in the state. And, I think, you know, credit to the guy, uh, Jim Justice has kind of actually taken this on with tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're starting to see with the New River National Park and Preserve, formerly the National River, um, we're taking steps towards moving towards a mostly tourism and natural asset economic development model. Um, Full disclosure, my grandfather uh, started the West Virginia Hub so I'm pretty familiar with the economic development um, pushes that we've had in the state. And this is finally something that looks to be successful. Um, there's been a lot of initiatives started that have been successful, but on the grander scale, this looks like it's going to be actually pretty darn successful. So with all that, um, this model means that we need to begin marketing our natural assets, rock climbing, hiking, biking, hunting, fishing, whitewater rafting, especially um, to businesses to move to areas where there's easy access to our extensive network of whitewater rivers. You know, Morgantown is a great site for that. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. When we talk about bringing businesses here, you know, we're going to break down the stereotypes and say, you know what, it's all bullshit here's all the good things you can bring your business here to, um, you know, how do you guys feel about moving towards this model? I mean, I think the model, question. the model's good. I mean, you know, uh, I, so my day job is like, I work in community development, you know, for, for a region of West Virginia, uh, Ritchie County being one of them. And uh, there, are, uh, the first thing that I want to say is uh, obviously like Ritchie County really red. Right. But, but all of those people that are in the local government there are, are trying to work these models in, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. Jim justice is trying to do the right thing as, as much as I, you know, disagree with him on other stuff. He is trying to do the right thing. My worry is, you know, you talked about, about the poverty in West Virginia, right? Like I, I grew up dirt poor. I had a single mom, you know, my dad had a bunch of drug issues and, and for us, poverty, you know, kind of looked different than the, you know, the normal poverty. A lot of people kind of grow up um, and, and forget where they come from and and stuff, but West Virginia, it's different, right? Like you grow up in poverty in West Virginia, you you know, you've seen a lot of stuff, right? Because West Virginia, if you're in poverty, you're really in poverty. Um, But in terms of the model itself, I think it's a smart model that we start pushing towards tourism, right? Because if you remember, I mean, 20 years ago, that's what we were looked at. We were looked at as a, a tourist destination. The, the only thing I will caveat that with is you can create this tourist destination, but you have to be able to make people feel welcome. 
And r- right now the state's not doing a good job of that because I mean, look at it there, you know, there's a fairness act that's currently in the West Virginia legislature and you have delegates like, like a uh, Mant who are going on these massive anti LGBTQ plus, uh, rampage of talking about how it's a sin and how it's against you know his his godliness and and things like that which has no place in in the west virginia legislature i think that that's gonna that's gonna be one of the major issues when it comes to this model is it relies on people wanting to come here that to me is is I guess the worry for me because i know that we have the natural resource that's not a that's not a problem at all the problem is the perception and and until we get politicians who are going to make people feel welcome. Like we, we talked about the new river uh, gorge national park just a few weeks ago on our podcast. And the response we got from people out of state, they were like, I would love to visit that, but I'm not sure I would be welcomed. And and that bothered me because that, you know, my, my West Virginia welcomes everybody, but unfortunately right now in the Capitol, that's not the case. So I think one of the other barriers that West Virginia, a couple other barriers that West Virginia is going to really have to deal with tourism is an industry that involves a lot of movement in and out, in and out, in and out. There's not the adequate infrastructure, both from roads, bridges, and highways to rural broadband that's going to bring people in permanently and that's going to help people get there. The, you know, you look at the um, outdoor tourism in places like out west, and it's sort of a hodgepodge. We have like Salt Lake City. You fly right into that huge city. You get access to, just, you know, mountains just all around you. California, very similar. West Virginia, it is a pain in the ass to try to get here from anywhere that's far away. It's either going to cost you an arm and a leg or going to take you a day and a half to drive here. I, I remember when I was up to, at school in Michigan, and granted, this is only about a seven or eight hour drive up to East Lansing. But when all my friends would go home for Christmas, they would fly. And I'll be like, yeah, I can't do that because it's going to be like a $700 or $500 plane ticket. That's not, and get to Charleston and then drive an hour. It's not an option for me. And, and the roads too are, are just not up to snuff. And so I think you have to make your built environment a little bit more friendlier for people to come in and out of. I think that's a big part of it. But I do think that there's a lot of there's a lot of teeth with this because West Virginia's greatest asset is its natural beauty. I mean, the state is I think the statistic I remember is 75% forest. You know, it is one of the most naturally beautiful places in the country and it's time for for the state for the government to harness that and not sell it out to the highest bidder. Now that being said, um I mean, they've got to do it well, and uh, I will say personally, I was a little disappointed in the rollout of Fallout 76, because um, <laughs> I thought that could be a really good boon for the state, and they, and it was not West Virginia's fault, but Bethesda really just shit the bet on that one. Uh, I won't go into that, but one thing I think, too, is is interesting is with tourism is it, you have to do it multifaceted, not just like the whitewater and everything else, but like there's a lot of reason for people to come here just for like the interesting culture surrounding like Point Pleasant and Mothman. It's something that could really honestly like bring in a lot of people who might just be driving along the highway uh, in Ohio and come into the state. So there's things like that too. But the other thing I would say with travel it, or with, excuse me, with tourism is that I hope that West Virginia doesn't put all their chips into that bucket only because tourism is sustainable, but I feel like you need a diverse portfolio of industry to help like make your state go. Cause look, look at the coronavirus right now. I mean, and granted 
pray to God that we don't have another pandemic like this in our lifetime. But you imagine the tourism industry is crippled and a great place to look as an example of how that hurts is the city of Nashville, Tennessee, where I used to live, who relies almost entirely on tourism. Um, especially because they don't have a, a state income tax. So they have a huge sales tax and hotel motel tax and their city is hemorrhaging money because people aren't coming in and it's created a humongous budget crisis. So it just shows that like if you put all your chips in one bucket, you can really, really suffer. And, and if the wrong circumstance comes your way, that being said, I think it's a net positive for West Virginia, especially training their focus on tourism as opposed to the extraction industry and industry and energy is, is a great move in my opinion. For sure. I think the divide, the diverse, excuse me, economic model would be smart to implement legalized marijuana. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I worked on extensively in college for, unfortunately, my classes, it didn't get much publication, um, except in the student newspaper, which I'm sure you guys remember from college, student newspapers are used for packing <laughs> plates and cups and stuff. Um Hey, but, I had some great yeah. articles in the picket. All right. I really did. Shepherd picket. I, Hey, I believe it. I believe it. I hit Capito hard on that underpass, man. I called it the overpriced underpass. Yeah. She, <laughs> yeah. She still talks about that. Yeah. She says that really? son of a <laughs> bitch with his podcast. <laughs> like, Damn it. More followers for them. I'm going to get Carol Baskin, my friend, to uh, crash a plane. And <laughs> yeah. Kill you, Chuck. Anyway, That's you hilarious. That, but. <laughs> no, it's like, no, I love it. I love it. This, uh, one of the marketing pitches for this podcast is that it's raw and real and you guys are like the most fun guests I've had so far. So please, uh, I, I probably won't cut any of this. We're a delight um, at parties. <laughs> I bet it don't happen because of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, you know, when we talk about marijuana, like, uh, I I saw in this strange tax package that just came out. I can't remember the delegate, you know, we're going to do all this Uh, wild stuff, but we're going to legalize marijuana. Like that doesn't make any sense to me why that was tacked on. I mean, cool that it's getting some momentum, but, uh, very, very strange tax package. And, that itself got a lot of attention from friends that I graduated from Ritchie County with saying, well, this doesn't do much for me to want to come back to West Virginia. And, you know, we don't have to get into that because you guys hit it really well that, you know, we need to elect people that do the right stuff, uh, you know, and attract young people back. Um, but I do see in states like Colorado and Washington and Oregon where they do have a big tourism industry. They also have, um, this really sustainable marijuana market. Um, obviously, uh, in my experience, the pushback to this is the, and I, I don't mean this in a mean or endearing way, is the old fogies that are in the way saying, well, we don't need to legalize marijuana. That's the gateway drug to harder drugs. But actually, the statistics say it is a gateway out of an opioid crisis that we're facing. It is, uh, you know, it's a great way to, um, cut down on crime. Um, you know, how many people are incarcerated for basic marijuana crimes? Um, so what, number one, uh, in your experience, why is the, uh, why is it so hard to get marijuana legalization in West Virginia? And number two, uh, why is it so annoying that if we just legalize marijuana, it would help out our state so much? I mean, this is something that's, I've been pushing, for such a long time and I haven't got the right about it um, because of my jobs um, being, you know, kind of away from the topic, but um, 
you know, why is it so annoying to us, you know, to a, a mid 20 year old, a late 20 or 20 year old and a young 30 year old to see this not happen when it just seems like a, one of the smartest ideas for our state. Yeah. It, it, you know, the most annoying part about it to answer your question is that the thing getting in the way of it is politics. And that, that is a, <laughs> that's a theme that can be applied to almost any societal issue right now is the political barriers of it. Like you said, it's, it's a no brainer. It's a slam dunk. You look at places like Colorado and California, not only has it been an economic benefit by creating a new industry and a new agricultural boon, but it also is good for their tourism industry, which would be a natural complement to what we just talked about in West Virginia. Cannabis tourism is huge. And I say cannabis in that as a, as a, uh, a specific term, but as we talked with Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman of the great state of Pennsylvania, or Commonwealth, excuse me, that we should be calling it weed, normalize that word. But I think to your other point, there is a stigma attached to it. And that is diminishing with every day that goes past. I mean, if you look at the public opinion of marijuana 10 years ago, five years ago, very different than it is today. It's kind of, you know, in a way it's like gay marriage. There was this evolution of, of public acceptance of it. And it, in a very similar fashion as, as what's happening with weed, states start to legalize it. It starts to be normalized. Then, you know, all of a sudden it's universally accepted on <laughs> And so I, I have hope that marijuana weed is going to be the same for that, but it, it's really the political barriers. Like we've seen a, I, I'll cite Nashville again. They tried to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana at the city level and the state government came in and superseded them and said, no, this is dangerous, blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of old fogies that are backwards in their views. And politically it was bad for a lot of them. Um, particularly because law enforcement generally, I would say by and large is against it for a multitude of different reasons, but law enforcement has a huge political pull in a lot of different circles. I'm sure West Virginia, um, John could probably speak to it more than I could, but I'm sure West Virginia, same thing. And so I think that's a consideration, but again, to us, we've talked about this so much ad nauseum on our show is it's a no brainer. The, the ground is fertile, pun intended, but also just quite literally fertile in West Virginia for this to happen. And it's something that it doesn't like blow the tops off of mountains and cause earthquakes and orange water in your sink to do, which is great, um, better than coal in that respect. And it, it, it just is, it would show that West Virginia is coming to terms with the reality. The reality is, is that coal and natural gas is on the decline. And we're not here to say that we're against that because there's a lot of hardworking people that put their lives into that work. And that's really important to respect and to support them. But coal and natural gas is on the decline and West Virginia is going to have to do something. And this is a way to bring a new industry in the state where, where it can actually happen and be successful and bring in a lot of economic impact. You know, you think about economic impact it's not just direct dollar to spend type of impact. It's, it's that, um, uh, God, what's the word for it? I used to do economic impact studies and I can't even think of the word right now, but, um, but like it causes people to spend money elsewhere. You bring somebody in because West Virginia is a great state for weed. They come and they go to the cannabis and the, the, the weed dispensary, but then they go to this local business afterwards and they mm -hmm. go here and then they spend the night at this Airbnb and then they do this, then they do mm -hmm. that. And, and it creates an economy in and of itself. And that's something that I think 
gets overlooked in the discussion about weed because people fixate on, oh, it's a, you know, it's a bunch of people that like to get high and stoner culture, all that shit. But really, it's right. so much more than that. It's about empowering yep. small businesses, entrepreneurs. It's about creating an environment where you can have a thriving industry. And again, to wrap this up, it is a no fucking brainer. The stats are there. The data is there. The public is there. And mostly the politics are there. It's just a handful of people that are standing in the way. Right. Do you think it would be best to take this to a referendum? I think, personally, if we put this on a ballot, it would pass easily. It would get rid of those guys that are standing in the way, first off. I think a lot of young people in the state are seriously looking at it now. And maybe a lot of them are stoners. You know, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a progression, right? There's stoners that are like, yeah, of course we want to see we legalize because we don't want it to, you know, we don't want to get in trouble for carrying a gram or two in our pocket um, or in our car. And then there's people that have serious medical issues that say we need marijuana because um, it has legitimate impacts mm-hmm. on our life. Um, and then there's the people in the middle that see maybe dollar signs like, yeah, we can profit off this. And then there's the politicians that are saying, yeah, we can get a lot of tax revenue off of this and it can help a state that has so many holes in so many different ways. And again, like I said, it, I, I I don't have the, the statistical numbers to back this up, but I do know in States, you know, where weed is legal, um, we do see less overdoses from opioids and we see less crime. Yeah. And I think a lot of that crime statistic cut down is the, you know, dude getting arrested for carrying five grams on him um, walking down the street or the dude that's caught with a blunt in his pocket during a traffic stop. I think that's that side of it. But still, the opioid, the opioid impact of it. It's huge. And that is huge for our state. You, you both, all three of us know that. Yeah. There's one thing I wanted to add real quick, which is, and I didn't mention this before, but it's a huge civil rights issue, like what you just mentioned, because disproportionately the people that have been put in prison that have lost years of their lives to just having like a dime bag of weed on them have been black, have been persons of color. And so this is a massive, massive, massive civil rights issue too. And and I would just be remiss if I didn't mention that because it often also gets swept under the rug in this conversation. But it's robbing people of their lives. It's insane that you can live in one part of this country and carry that around and it's perfectly legal. But in a place like West Virginia, you can be in prison for like five or 10 years. So I think we need a break here for a second. I've said a few times in this segment that I don't have numbers, but I do now. I just didn't at the time of the recording. In states that have legalized marijuana, both for medical and recreational purposes, crime has dropped as have opioid deaths. According to a study published in 2018 by Forbes, Violent crime in states that border Mexico has fallen by an average of 13% since legal cannabis was put on the books and at even higher rates regarding homicide. It states, quote, Researchers suggest that the drop can be attributed to cannabis users no longer having to rely on black market products from Mexico, which has been providing the bulk of cannabis products consumed in the U.S. for decades, end quote. The same article points out that, quote, Among U.S. states bordering Mexico that have medical marijuana laws, or MMLs, they found that California saw the highest overall reduction in violent crime at 15%, and Arizona the lowest with a 7% drop. 
Overall, robberies fell by 19% in border states with MMLs, murder dropped by 10%, and homicides related to the drug trade fell by an impressive 41%, end quote. As for the effect legal marijuana can have on opioid overdoses and deaths, studies are kind of split, at least two studies published in 2019 are. For instance, one study published by three people within Columbia University found in the U.S. National Library of Medicine at the National Institute of Health notes, quote, of the 16 eligible studies, four assessed the association of state marijuana law status with opioid overdose mortality, seven with prescription opioids dispensed, and the remaining with non-medical use in opioid-related hospitalizations. Random effects modeling based on pooled data revealed that legalizing marijuana for medical use was associated with a statistically non-significant 8% reduction in opioid overdose mortality and a 7% reduction in prescription opioids dispensed. Legalizing marijuana for recreational use was associated with an additional 7% reduction in opioid overdose mortality in Colorado and a 6% reduction in opioid prescriptions among fee-for-service Medicaid and managed care enrollees, end quote. The other, published by doctors from the University of Oklahoma and other practices around the Sooner State, answers the question, is there less opioid abuse in states where marijuana use has been decriminalized for either medical or recreational use? That it does, but it goes on to say, quote, however, the evidence is mixed. While most reviewed studies showed reductions in rates of opioid overdose and opioid-related hospitalizations, among other outcomes in states with medical marijuana laws, a patient-level report in National Institute on Drug Abuse Data indicated an increase in opioid use among cannabis users and higher rates of opioid-related deaths in these states. Given these mixed results, robust prospective studies are needed to determine the impact of marijuana legislation on opioid use and abuse, end quote. Also, I feel as if I'm coming across that West Virginia hasn't legalized weed in any form. That's actually not the case. In 2017, Governor Jim Justice, a Republican, signed a medical marijuana bill that allows people suffering from 15 different ailments to apply for a medical card from a licensed physician. At first, it only allowed pills, oils, topicals, tinctures, and other non-plant forms of medicine. But in March of last year, Justice signed Senate Bill 339 that would allow people to use medical bud. Still, the process to become a grower or distributor has been difficult for most, and there still are not distributors selling dry leaf medical cannabis. A local distributor reported to me that it's likely this form of medical marijuana will hit shelves sometime in the spring, they believe late spring. So, I just wanted to cut away for a second to clear some of that up in case folks were scratching their heads or wanted extra information. Back to Chuck and John. Alcohol is one of the leading causes of domestic violence. It's just what it's what gets people to this mindset that this is okay. Obviously, they have other issues, but but right. alcohol is a mind-changing drug that we have no problem you know, being allowed to be sold in every single nook and cranny of West Virginia, which, you know, you know right. what, if you want to drink more power to you, but here's the problem mm -hmm. that I have with it is that this is a plant that is right. statistically proven to help people. For instance, like I was just, uh, I was just recently diagnosed with Epstein's bar, chronic Epstein's bar, which causes my body to do really terrible things. Uh, one of the biggest things that they said that could help me in the long run, medical marijuana. You know, West Virginia mm -hmm. continues to struggle with medical marijuana. And the fact is right. my, my job wouldn't even let me have it, you know, because it's, it's mm -hmm. not legal at the federal or the state level. They're not going to want that. It's right. 
it's holding so many people back and it's holding the state back. Appalachia and West Virginia are historically the last people to the table when something good happens in this country. You look at anything, like obviously renewable energy, we are terrible mm-hmm. at that. We just continue yep. to refuse reality, which is insane to me. But mm-hmm. we're also refusing reality on marijuana. We're going to wait. I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's going to be it's, I would say at least five more years before West Virginia legalizes marijuana. And and it's not because it shouldn't be. It's because we always do this. We wait until yeah. everyone around us does it. And then it's less of mm-hmm. an economic impact. If we did it, if we did it right now, Andrew, look at all of the states around us who would be coming to West Virginia for their marijuana. Holy yep. Ohio. shit. Ohio, oh, oh, Ohio yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. PA, they do have it, but there are places that don't have access to it because they're so rural that are connected to West Virginia that they would be able to come in and do it. It's insane. And the fact is, we, we as a state are looking around every single day and we're saying, man, why are young people leaving? Why don't they want to live in West Virginia? And then you kind of look around at where they're moving to, right? Well, they're moving mm-hmm. to California. What does California have? Oh, they have everything. What does what's mm-hmm. Colorado have now? Oh, they have they have pot. Okay, that makes sense. That people want to live, and this is, I think, this is what's so great about this current generation that's coming up, is that they're so tired of taking people's bullshit because they've lived through so mm-hmm. much. I mean, if you think about it, like our age of people have lived through a ton of historical events. We've always been told that we're this needy generation that we, you know, we ask, we ask for everything and give nothing in return. We're always kind of like placed in this weird spot, but this generation also doesn't give a shit anymore. And Mm -hmm. they're like, look, if I don't like living here, I'm out. Like I'm leaving. And that's why you see so many people leave. And the biggest thing with that is college education acceptance. They can go, they can leave. You know, and, mm-hmm. and until West Virginia figures this out and legalizes marijuana, that should be step one. They should do that tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to me and to Chuck and pretty much the majority of people, this is a no brainer. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I don't understand. And this is the last thing I'll say about it. I don't understand the, and I hate to, I, <laughs> some people might say, you're being an ageist. I don't understand the mindset and older generations. And I even see it in my, my parents' generation, not my parents, but my parents' generation that, you know, well, we legalize weed and then we're going to see, you know, all these um, accidents and all this, uh, all this damage done. And you brought up the good point about, you know, alcohol. I mean, how many DUIs do we see a year? Like how many of those, you know, uh, DWIs are already marijuana related and you know when you legalize something like a drug like we did alcohol after prohibition there's obviously going to be the negative side effects and i think people dwell too much on the negative side of things and don't look at what's already legal and the negative side of that too like do i want to see someone get killed in a car accident because they drank too much no do i want to see someone get thrown out of a car because they smoke too much weed no not at all but you know we're always going to see the irresponsible side of stuff like this. And I just don't understand that mindset. And the other side of it is I don't understand the religious mindset of it either. You know, there's so many things, and this is my, my religious studies coming out of me from college uh, and my religious background. There's so many stories in the Bible that I look at. I'm like, that's shrooms. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. Absolutely. That is, 
ayahuasca or that is hard like natural drugs like the the, the, the do, you, do you think they could have possibly written the bible stone cold sober no. and like no. the story of the burning bush it is thought that moses um whoever moses was if he was a real person or not um i think oh. i'm gonna lose like 200 followers after i publish this one but you know what i mean like well i think i think it's important to caveat too like this is us looking at it through a a lens of you know of marijuana or of shrooms or whatever this isn't obviously like this is not an objective view and and i'll I'll let you get back on it but the one thing i wanted to say is my mom for instance she's 71 (laughs) and for years she thought the idea of legalizing marijuana and medical marijuana was the worst thing possible and i sat down and had a conversation with her about why Mm -hmm. and this might be why you know we're seeing this across west virginia one we have the you know i think we have the oldest population in the country but two when they were growing up they were being shown videos that marijuana if you if you took a puff it killed you that's yeah, killed literally you. Right, right. that's literally what what people were showing kids and then <laughs> you know there there there's this you know obviously like look at the the psychological and the sociological aspect of it mm-hmm. if you're told something's bad for for 20 30 years what's going right. to make you flip you know what i mean they and and so right. like for years they were you know they got to watch bud light and budweiser commercials and mixed mm-hmm. in between that was anti-marijuana and how and marlboro man commercials right and, yeah and, and here comes right. camel joe but then here comes a, a just jacked as shit like bronze guy on the back of a horse pulling out a pack of marlboro reds saying that you can look like this dude yeah i mean it's like yeah they used right, to have old right. spice commercials for cigarettes i mean that that's literally yeah what it used to be and and they used to to hate on marijuana and say things that just were not true Um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the brainwashing that you're seeing today in politics yeah for sure for sure yeah i i just don't like i was saying i just don't understand the religious side of it and that's a great point the the religious side of it probably did pay for a lot of those ads i mean we don't see the well at least i don't see the paper trail to it but there are groups that are funded i mean um narcotics anonymous alcoholics anonymous are traditionally church funded things and don't get me wrong like i'm not saying the church is bad i grew up pentecostal you know i studied religion in college because i really really love the idea of it but while i'm studying this stuff in college and i'm thinking back to my you know teachings i'm thinking man how many of the people that we preached about or talked about in church or sunday school were high as shit like seriously and i go back to the burning bush story you know, Moses, whoever he was, if he was a group of people um, just writing this, you know, the burning bush is actually believed to have been, um, you know, a, I believe psilocybin trip. Um, I don't know. I don't know the exact drug it was it was thought to be, but um, if not psilocybin, very similar to psilocybin. And, uh, you know, I. It's just one of those things that we see as fantasy. Some people see as fantasy or some people see as legit. And I see it as smoking certain things or um, you know, ingesting certain things has been huge um, throughout religious practices. Hell yeah, peyote. I mean, up, up until, yeah, up until recently. And I think if we <laughs> maybe as a country or just a people went back to maybe using these psychedelics or, um, you know, just these recreational now recreational drugs, 
we would actually be able to get along a lot better um, and just have a better country. Uh, you know, I, and again, I don't want to talk too much on this, but um, yeah, it's just one of those things I don't understand. What, and you say five years. I think as soon as it's federally legal is when West Virginia, well, whether the Biden administration does it or if it is five that's or 10 what years I'm, from that, now. That's exactly what I'm counting on yeah. too. I don't think it happens in the legislature, at least not right now because of how bad the split is. Uh, you know, yeah. Republicans aren't going to support this currently. So uh, I, that's what essentially I'm going for is that the Biden administration sure. or maybe a Harris administration, if Biden doesn't rerun, mm-hmm. uh, ends up, you know, creating a pathway for legal marijuana, you know, federally. Sure. Or for whatever reason, West Virginia goes blue again. Well, I would um, love to see that. That would be a, that would be a miracle. Uh, I mean, that, I think that'd be the greatest comeback story. That'd be better than Hoosiers. So. <laughs> right. For sure. Um, well, moving on to my last question on economic development, because it does bleed into the New River Gorge. What are some other things? And I know we just had a very long discussion about economic development, but what are some other things you guys see. And I want to preface this. I don't mean to ask you questions and then put, uh, interject my own oh, thoughts. Yeah. Um, my grandfather is huge on the rail trail conservancy in the state. One of the big projects right now is trying to get the Parkersburg to Pittsburgh corridor done. Um, you know, the North Bend rail trail actually right now is closed because they have been running fiber along the rail trail to help get broadband access to residents, which Congrats on the people who have done that. Zayo has been huge in that. Um, there have been some hiccups with uh, restoring the trail. That's getting done. Um, and you guys brought up Mountain State Spotlight. Number one, I love Mountain State Spotlight. Um, and my hometown paper actually just partnered with them. The Richie Gazette just partnered with them. Um, and one of the stories that they called out was the fact, um, you know, the DNR requested money for CARES Act from the CARES Act to repair this stuff. Uh, I don't want to get too much into I'm actually doing a story on it, so I don't want to sound uh, an alarm here. Apparently, according to the DNR director, that report was false. But the point being, we are getting fiber in these rural parts of you know, West Virginia. And if we had a Parkersburg to Pittsburgh connection, think of all the fiber that they could run instead of to uh, uh, Mount Storm, I think is the yeah. place that it's going. Yeah, so like Caro to Mount Storm, um, think about the fiber that could be run from Parkersburg to Pittsburgh. Um, And then on the other side of it, think about the connection of Parkersburg to Pittsburgh and then the connection Pittsburgh has to Washington, D.C. because of uh, Great Allegheny Passage. You know, when I look at economic development, I do see a lot of, you know, interchange within towns, small towns especially. Cities are great, too. Don't get me wrong. You know, we've seen a lot of change in Morgantown around things like the rail trail. Um, But at the same time, you know, when we look at it on a small scale, um, trails, just simple as that, can add a lot to a town and can lead to a lot of economic development. So that's my idea outside of what we've talked about. But what are some of the other things you guys see, um, you know, pushing West Virginia forward? First off, the the rail trail 
is a a major misstep in in West Virginia. It's something that should be, uh, and obviously, like uh, I I've done a little bit of work on on the actual the, the Parkersburg part of it. Um, you know, there are some other holdups that that are you know some legal issues that that have gone on with it in terms of trying to buy property and things like that. So that is one of the holdups. But I mean, it right. a rail trail saves small towns because every time people come here for those trails, they have to stop. They have to get drinks. They have to get food. They have to do all, you know, they got to go to the bathroom. They've got to do other things. These are the, the, you know, these trails help. I think, you know, besides that, there are so many things that we're missing here in West Virginia. We could be one of the most prominent renewable energy states across the country with, with the ability that we have, the setup that we have, if we would stop fighting it, we could easily be the best. It would replace all it would replace the jobs that we're we're claiming to lose because of you know coal regulations, which we know is not the not the actual case, but that would be massive for this state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with John on that. I think that's the other big kind of obvious thing is renewables have been shunned because of the power of of the the fossil fuel industries in the state. But it's something that there's been, I think, a lot of smaller, more grassroots movement around and has been for a long time. Uh, I think Rewire, Appalachia might be one of them. There's a, or or some others too. I'm I'm blanking on the names, but there's a lot of like smaller outfits that have been pushing that. But it, again, like this has come back to it every time is like the politics are not there yet. And unfortunately, but it could be huge. I mean, you look at the three things we've talked about today. We've talked about tourism, ag, energy those three alone could help bring west virginia out of the dark drag it out of the dark and you know there's just so many nonsensical barriers to all three of those now tourism is is definitely getting a good injection of money and of time and thought and i think it's a it's a good thoughtful process but uh the other two i mean it's just it's stupid barriers that are in the way of both of them Time for another cut. The New River Gorge Redesignation Act, something you may remember from Volume 1 if you listened, was a bill in the U.S. Congress that I and my colleagues from BHA were very much against. Despite the positive economic impact this will have, something I'm naturally happy about, I'm still upset about losing 4,000 acres of hunting land that's been used for generations by local hunters. It's a hard position for me to be in. Number one, I'm now a director on the board of directors of the West Virginia chapter. That happened long after the Volume 1 episode dropped. So during that episode, I wasn't, um, you know, further, I still ask myself if losing that land will truly be offset by new revenue coming into the state in the Fayetteville area. So am I happy about the redesignation for what it can do for our state? Yeah, I suppose, as long as it actually does help out. Do I think the second bill was better than the first? Absolutely it was. Am I upset we lost that land? Yes, 100%. I didn't want to see that happen. No one in our chapter wanted to see that happen. I see public land access to hunters being one of the first things on the chopping block for many different exploits, and that bothers me a great deal. My biggest worry moving forward on this is that the National Park Service won't bid on the additional lands that will essentially offset the lost 4,000 acres, land that can be added into the preserved part of the gorge. But that's why I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that gets through. It won't be for a while, at least, we believe. But it's one of my new missions to see through. So even though I've taken a hard stance that this shouldn't 
have, you know, gone down the way it went down where we've lost, you know, over 4,000 acres. It is hard for me to, you know, in my economic development mind, say that this won't have some positive impact because I believe it will. It just comes down to the infrastructure that's there and the planned infrastructure that will go into it. So before I get off onto a deep tangent, I want to go back to Chuck and John, which in this next segment, you'll hear the three of us discuss the redesignation and their thoughts on the whole process. So, you know, we go, I'm going to switch back to tourism. You know, I've been saving the New River Gorge for last here. There are numbers behind, you know, areas becoming national parks or national preserves, probably national you know, like a redesignation because the New River Gorge has been a national ever since the late 70s. So there are numbers behind, you know, seeing money come into areas that host a national park. There are concerns, which I want to touch on. Um, you know, I wrote about this. I think you guys retweeted it from your account or maybe, John, you retweeted it. But, um, you know, so I want to touch on both the pros and cons with you guys. So what are the pros in your mind? aside from just the money coming in uh, of the New River Gorge being redesignated as a national park and preserve? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, so I used to work uh, in advocacy trying to get more funding for national parks, which hell of a thing to try to do. But it's the notoriety, number one, that comes with it. That I, like It may seem like a small change from National Scenic River to National Park, but I guarantee you that the general, like, public who may have heard of New River Gorge, I guarantee you a lot of them didn't realize it was a national park site or national park managed outfit. And so that alone, that prestige is really helpful. But the thing that happens too, is it builds community around it and it, and it brings in more revenue in that respect. You look at like, and this is sort of like a, it's, this is not an equivalent example, but it's one worth mentioning. The Great Smoky Mountains that, that split between North Carolina, uh, Western North Carolina and East Tennessee, that is the heartbeat of that economy right there. You, you have Gatlinburg, you have Pigeon Forge, you've got Sevierville. All of them rely on the tourism and everything that comes from it, the outdoor recreation that comes from it to survive, to thrive. And so I think that is a huge benefit that comes from it because you can spawn new things out of it. Like outdoor recreation is already great at New River Gorge could be even better because of this because it's going to bring new people in. It's going to bring new interest in. And I think it's also going to create more community around it. And I think it's just going to have, I think the biggest effect that may not be very quantifiable is going to be a renewed interest in West Virginia itself. I bet you a lot of people don't know what New River Gorge is. A lot of people outside of West Virginia anyway or the surrounding region, even though if they get a quarter uh, it's a West Virginia core. It's going to be on the back of it, but guarantee you that most people don't know what it is. And it's going to tell you that West Virginia is important enough to have a national park and God damn, it's actually pretty, pretty gorgeous. Maybe I want to check that out. Wouldn't have ever given West Virginia a second thought, but now I want to, now I want to go there. Now I want to see this. And I, that's what I hope. I hope that people start to look at it and say, Hey, okay, maybe this is a place I want to go check out. Um, I know you can't really measure that necessarily in numbers, but, but from a public perception, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, 
to me, the I think the biggest pro in terms for West Virginia is it gets people to come here. And, and I don't mean that just by a, a tourist definition. I think really, if you look at how people choose where to move to or where to live, a lot of them, if you surveyed them, it would be based off places they visited. You know, if it's it's jobs and, you know, obviously family, and then I, I would guarantee you it's based off uh, places that they've visited or that they're familiar with. When when people are actually able to see West Virginia and say, wow, this place isn't actually that bad, uh, you know, they're more willing to move here. They're more willing to, to make this a at least a regular trip. If you look, you know, we have Snowshoe and um, uh, the, you know, Canaan Valley who, where they had, uh, you know, vacation houses that they can't fill anymore that they used to be a massive thing you could never get a vacation house up there no one ever wanted to sell if you can bring that back you start bringing money back into the state and, and those are big money big money players those are the people that you want to come in because they're going to pay the taxes uh you know to and they're going to buy stuff that's the biggest thing you want people to buy stuff you want the you know you want the money rolling uh, and those are the people that you need you know you know, I hate to make it a dollars and cents type thing, but just looking at the basic breakdown of it, if you get people here, it equals money. And to me, that's a good idea. Yeah. You know, the gateway community, uh, at least the biggest gateway community to this is Fayetteville. Yeah. Um, you know, Fayetteville, some might say has been doing fine, but people in Fayetteville might be saying, well, we need a little bit more. Um, you know, I, again, this is a thing with West Virginia, like the big towns, the big cities, they might be, they might look okay from the outside, but the inside might need a little bit of a push before I get into the cons. Cause I want to ask you one more question about, you know, a potential pro here. Do you see Fayetteville like literally growing from this over time? I can take a stab at that. And then I, I apologize. I have to jump off at seven 30, but, um, so I think inherently it almost has to, because if, if it, it, you know, if you get an increase in tourism, you get an increase in interest, I think just inherently you're going to have that town grow. I think with other places and I can't think of them off the top of my head. I think there maybe was a place, it was in Indiana and then maybe one in Utah that it was a redesignation of a national monument or something to a national park. They saw growth. Now it wasn't like crazy high, but there was growth. And I think that like inherently you're going to see that because you're going to see more people wanting to spend more time there maybe wanting to move there. New businesses are going to relocate there, like especially outdoor recreation. You're going to have um, all of those things. So I, I don't see where it couldn't. The question is, is how do you manage that growth? And that's something that I think has come up as a criticism. Um, but, you know, like with – there's a whole like debate around like Airbnbs and that type of thing and pushing out locals. And, and that's, that's always a concern. I think that probably by and large, the benefits outweigh the concern, but it's also, it, it's always a concern with that. And to me, it comes back to, you can't mistreat the people that were there in order to have an economic benefit. You have to be able to support those people because it's their community and you're, you're bringing in something new and exciting, but you also have to respect that about them. Yeah. yeah, and I apologize. I have to jump off. Um, oh, you're fine. This man. was this was really fun. And if you send me the audio file, um, we can probably like put it into our feed on like a Thursday or something to cross share it if you'd like. Yeah, that would be awesome, man. I appreciate you joining. I I really appreciate you taking the time. Sorry, sorry, we went an hour and a half. No, nah, it's all but, right. Uh, I'll be sure to stay in touch, and I'll send you this to you when I'm uh when it's done. Cool. Thanks. No problem. Thanks, Chuck. See you, Chuck. All right, and then there was one. Uh, 
in terms of in terms of it growing, I think that there are uh, there there's a real possibility of that. I mean, I, but I don't. I know I've heard some of the people really worry about you know uh, it growing too too rapidly or or too much. Right. I don't see that happening. I don't I don't mm-hmm. think West Virginia in general has that pool. Uh, like like mm-hmm. Tennessee, for instance. Tennessee has a lot of things going for it. It's got Knoxville, Nashville, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's got Dolly Parton, which is enough for me. Uh, and and uh, <laughs> West Virginia. In order to ever be like that, it's got to change its its mindset. It's got to make Charleston a destination. It, you know, it's got sure. to make Morgantown a destination. Morgantown is the most underused city in this state. In this state, yes, we have WVU football and we have WVU basketball, but what else do we have? I mean, come on, Morgantown can be uh, it can be a a massive city that we continue just yeah. to kind of uh, let run its course and be the same, you know, always, always the same. And, and to me, that's, uh, that, that always blows my mind. But anyway, I, I don't think it's going to grow too rapidly. I do think it will grow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't grow without the infrastructure to grow. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, that's the concern I wanted to bring up was, you know, I worry about the infrastructure and even in the bill, it said, you have to add this much parking, you have to add, uh, this and this. And, I do worry about the infrastructure, but at the same time, I know that it actually can't grow <laughs> without the space. Um, and here's my other concern. How much are we going to start chopping away? You know, this is my biggest concern, losing the generational hunting lands down there. I've hunted down there twice in my whole life, twice. But I have friends and connections that have hunted down there since they were kids. You know, their grandfathers, their their fathers, their mothers, their grandmothers have hunted there their entire lives. So how much more are we going to lose of the public lands to accommodate this? And then I have to think from the other side, that is the economically or the economic development, like smart side of me saying, Hey, it's okay to lose a little bit, you know, as long as it's good for your state. But you know, we we already talked about the the growth. Um, did you grow up like hunting or anything like that? Funny enough, so no one in my family was born here. They were all born all born in Connecticut. All my siblings, everybody, they're all all born in Connecticut. We they moved here. They moved to Doddridge County after that, um, and that's obviously where I was born. Big thing to me, I didn't get into hunting. I did I did get into shooting. I I, I do I own a gun and and I like to go shooting and things like that. Um, but I was also concerned with this too, where, uh, I know that the new river gorge is this, this prime hunting area. I mean, I, I get it. Like yeah. I, I would be upset too. Now we'll, I do want to caveat that. I know a lot of the, you know, the sportsmen right now who are, who, who have stuck through this interview to get this one part to talk about outdoors. Um, I, I want to say the bill does label which lands will be removed. Correct. So it's only about 4,000 acres, which I know sounds like a lot, but it's nothing whenever you're looking at the New River Gorge. And and from what I've heard, I don't know, I can't, I can't put my hand on the Bible because I don't know. I've heard that a lot of that land was not the prime real estate. It was the other side of the park that, that people like to hunt in. So they didn't take that away. And I think that's pretty big. And I think we we talked about this on our show. You have to be realistic about it too. Uh, our obviously our goal is let the hunters hunt 
and we want to bring people in. If people have to worry about, you know, obviously it's a, I think it's a kind of a crazy worry, but if they have to worry about getting shot or, or, you know, uh, not being in a safe environment, they're not going right. to show up. I mean, right. And that's the thing. You got a bunch of people who maybe they're coming from New York or California or wherever that they, you know, they're not used to, to hunting or they're not used to guns and which is fine. They, you know, teach their own and maybe they don't feel comfortable with it. So, I mean, I, I think that this creates that ability to be comfortable while still maintaining the integrity of the hunting. And again, I've only hunted down in this area twice. And the places I've hunted is under the preserve now. Um, and I know that, you know, both Senator Manchin and Capito come from very traditional West Virginia yeah. families. Obviously, Capito's dad was the governor for a while. Manchin was also the governor. But I mean... How many commercials have we seen over the course of our life of Manchin shooting a bill hanging up on a post? You know what I mean? Like yeah, he loves shooting energy. Bills. He that's he his, does. That's his thing. He does. He does. And you know, I expressed my concerns to Manchin about it through email, just like a lot of people did. And I understand that if they don't fully understand the bill at hand, they probably are seeing these damn politicians are taking away our land. They're stepping on our rights and. I'm going to bring up that Project Upland thing I talked about earlier. Like, you know, they view the person, no matter how much they know about him or not know about him, and they say, you are going against my traditional thought process. Therefore, you are the enemy. You are stepping on my land, or literally or figuratively, or you're stepping on my toes, I should say. Um, I know that both senators decided to put in a stipulation also that the National Park Service can bid on additional lands to add to the reserve mm -hmm. to offset the loss that is in the National Park. Also, there is lands that have never been opened for the hunting uh, in Grandview that are now open to public hunting. So they tried. I mean, you know, looking at it from an objective standpoint, they tried to offset the losses, if any, Again, because I don't know the lands personally of what's happening there. So I will be honest with you. When I was first reading the first bill, it pissed me off because I'm thinking, I don't want to lose any land, even if the I don't hunt down. No, it wasn't. You yeah. know, I don't want to lose any land. This is completely unfair to the people that have grown up here hunting. Um, and it irritated me. And then the second one came out. And truth be told, I didn't read the second one until I actually saw it passed because I didn't realize it was a new one. <laughs> so yeah um someone had to say hey chill out like this is a new bill and this was after or this was before i commented on your all's twitter post um you know when that guy went back and forth and i've been going not in like a bad way but back and forth with a couple people having conversations about it but i will say there is a contingency of hunters saying you know no matter what, this is a stupid bill and we're mad about it. But I understand the pain that they're dealing with. You know, like, God bless certain apps like Onyx, um, which is this GPS tracking app uh, system that I you can buy for 20 bucks a month uh, or like $10 a month for one state. Um, and it'll tell you the boundaries. So if I'm floating down the river in my raft um, in a time where whitewater rafters aren't going to be there like January per se, um, for duck hunting. And, you know, um, I'm right inside the park boundaries. I can't shoot there, you know, 200 feet in front of me. I'm allowed to shoot. And, yeah. you know, I think we're going to start seeing younger people take part in this because they know for a fact, like I can get on my iPhone and see, Hey, I'm okay to shoot here. 
Um, and we're going to see the older people just like with other changes in hunting and fishing sports and shooting sports phase out or die. And it, I don't mean to be morbid about it, but, um, you know, all in all, and I, I think it's fair to share my personal opinion now about this. I've been trying to be very quiet about it f- uh, up until now because I knew we were going to talk about it. I think both senators really put thought and time into creating the second bill. I did not like how it was passed. Uh, I think the whole system of omnibus bills is stupid. Um, I hate that this is how our Congress gets things passed now. Cool that the UFO stuff passed in that same bill, but (laughs) outside of that, like, I hate the idea of omnibus bills. And if that's how our government's going to work from here on out, I don't know how I really feel about it. It's um, always, unfortunately, it's it, it's not a new phenomenon. No, I mean, it's not. Uh, West and and the big thing, West Virginia has always been a beneficiary of huge bills. Right, Robert C. Byrd. Mm-hmm. He was, he, you know, for all of his faults. Obviously, we don't condone what he thought. Sure, but but as a senator, he was damn good at bringing the pork home. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you've been, you lived in Jefferson County. Mm-hmm. How many things on Shepherd's campus are named after Robert C. Bird? I mean, <laughs> Too many. And, and, it's, and it's because of how much money he put into these huge bills yeah. and said, look, you know, as the, as the senior Democrat, I am not going to vote for a bill that has nothing to do with my state. And yeah. he always did that. And, right. and uh, I, I don't, I don't enjoy those bills either. I, I think that they're, um, they they leave a bad taste in your mouth. Sure. You know, that that's that's the way it looks. And I think this goes to show how important it is to know your representatives. Because now, you know, obviously we vote for Capito and Mansion every year. We know who they are. We also know what they'll protect. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and hunting is one of them. Right. Uh, and, and so really I didn't I never had to worry about this. One, I don't hunt, so I can't say that I would anyway. But two, just the fact that I knew who we had in office. Mm-hmm. They're not going to let that happen. Right. Uh, you know, they'd rather it not be a national park than give up, you know, prime real estate. So, sure. so I think that's why it's important to have those types of people. If that's what your state believes. Right. And I, I agree with you that it there it's a double edged sword. I think right. is what we're both saying here is these huge bills are great for small States like West Virginia, but they also have larger implica- implications on the nation yep. that aren't, always great anything else i mean we've talked about so much (laughs) if there's anything you can think of to wrap this whole thing up uh do you have anything well i mean i I think just in general uh these are the types of discussions that need to happen for the state i mean this is really you know obviously like our podcast is all of appalachia so Mm -hmm. like we don't we don't focus on west virginia um you know we we talk about it but it's not you know it's not the forefront um but i think it's important that that podcasts like yours that are talking about out the outdoors that may not always get into subjects like these. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to bring these topics in because you're going to have listeners who, you know, maybe never thought about this stuff and, you know, it's going to hit them and go, wait a second, this, this podcast that focuses on outdoors just taught me a shit ton of stuff about, you know, <laughs> everything else. And I think that that's great. I mean, I think it I really, you know, it really is. I love what you're doing. I think that uh, it's going to be a, a massive success. And I think you should, you know, stick with this, this type of, uh, this type of game plan. Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah. that. I love the stuff you guys are doing too. And, you know, I, I can't leave you, uh, I can't have you leave this, you know, discussion without saying that listening to your podcast and seeing the stuff that you and Chuck put out, um, 
you know, and I wish he was here to hear this. He'll hear it after the fact. But, you know, you guys have been an inspiration to not just me, but a lot of people I know. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who follow you guys and, you know, your voice is important to these topics and so much more. I mean, you know, again, I think we could have a five hour podcast talking about so much stuff. Don't tell uh, me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's not only great to know that we all grew up 45 minutes away from each other, but that there are young people out there that, you know, we might not have the same political ideologies and we might not have the same ideas on how to move West Virginia forward. But at the base of it, we are going to move West Virginia forward. There will be some people that try and hold it back. They want to see things stay the same. And, you know, we're always going to be faced with those people, but you guys are doing such a great job um, of communicating um, you know, messages that are important to people and you say it in a way. And I think this is the most important thing. And I try and, you know, model the same thing is you put it out in a way that is understandable. That isn't, it doesn't come off elitist and you guys have the same accent we do. And I, and I know that seems minimal for me to, you know, point out, but for me to hear that guy's from the mid Ohio Valley, I know that accent um, I, you know, I know that voice to hear you guys say the stuff that you say, um, even though I do agree with you on so many different things, I have a lot of faith that our state is in good hands because I see so many young people interacting with your stuff. Um, and it, it just gives me a lot of hope. So, um, I look forward to the stuff you guys are going to put out and hopefully we can continue having conversations. I mean, I really enjoyed having you guys on. Um, and it's, it's good to have these conversations with people my age. I'm tired of having them with people 30 years older than me. <laughs> well, well, thank you for the, the, the kind words there. Thank you for having us on. It really is awesome. These types of podcasts, like Chuck and I obviously do our own thing and, and, to be honest, we never expected any type of success. So anytime we can reach new people, it's, it's amazing. And people, you know, when people actually say, I want to hear what you're saying. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, and I think you're going to, I mean, you're going to get that a, a ton, you know, from the, from this podcast is going to be um, something that people are going to want to tune into. So, so I really do appreciate you having us. I think it's, it's great what you're doing and and I, I hope you continue, you know, pushing this this way as well. Okay. All right. Well then speaking of terrifying Furbies, let's roll into announcements and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll end on a beef. Do you have our new Patreon members, John? Yeah, we've got two, uh, two new ones. We've got Julia and we've got Michael. Thank you so Hello. much. For, thank you so much for joining the Patreon. We really do appreciate it. We're going to be doing, uh, as promised, we're going to be doing a hundred dollar drawing. Uh, that's going to take place probably mid March. Uh, and then, you know, we'll announce it. Only the people who are Patreon members get to be involved in that. Uh, and like I said, one person of the, I think we have 112 right now. One person's going to win a hundred dollars. Boom. Hell cold yeah. Hard cash. Cold hard cash. And by that, I mean, we will PayPal. send it to you via <laughs> PayPal. Uh, or something. We'll figure still, it out. Yeah. Yeah. The other. If you got to do Venmo, who knows? The other thing that we need to mention is we're, we're going to be releasing part two of Flatwoods monster here soon. Uh, there's a little bit of delay on that, both just from timing standpoint, but also because we're debating whether or not we want to re re-record part of it with the new equipment. So it sounds better. So just know that that is still going to be coming out soon, hopefully next week. 
Um, and I will be releasing our black owned businesses list soon as well. That was an undertaking that took a lot more time than I originally anticipated, which is a good thing. And so what I'm going to do probably is put it out as a Google spreadsheet for everybody to continue adding to like we've done normally, rather than try to make a post about it because there's just too many and I don't want to get selective. So I know some people have been asking about that. That's game plan there. So look for that coming out later this week. That's all the announcements I have. Why don't we why don't we end this this um relaxed episode on a beef? All right, Chuck. This I believe will be my last political beef for a while. I'm a, I'm trying to look, I got too much stress in my life. My doctor tells me that all the time. Uh, she also says that you're not supposed to uh, whenever she asks, like, what's your favorite salad? Pasta is not the right answer. And I think that that's just ridiculous. Uh, so what does she know? I don't know. But anyway, I got to be careful. Stress is getting to me. Things are happening. Politics have become so divisive on both sides that I think my time currently is spent better on other things. And we'll talk about that in the future. But for one last time, at least for the next couple months, because I'm going to take a little rest off of politics, I got beef this week with President Joseph Robinette Biden. Whoa. Yep. Look, Joe Biden is a very nice guy. He, he, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's easy to, to talk to. I've never talked to him, but I assume he's, you know, pretty easy to talk to. He comes off as like the grandpa esque type guy. Um, he made a lot of promises about his first 100 days. Uh, currently, he's on what day? What 59? I don't know. Not, not no, even, not even not close. Even, I counted that at the beginning. So uh, 20th of January, I think so was tw- the 28. He he's about uh, 38 days. Yeah, 38 or 40. Okay. So anyway, to here's the problem, Chuck. In order to meet those promises you have to get on to the you know the right track and joe biden hasn't done that he's focused on uh you know keeping the status quo like that was under uh the obama administration he has not separated himself from that administration at all in fact if you go look at the people he's appointed they're all obama appointees which is you know you do you but to me you have to become your own president and i don't think joe biden is doing that i think in my eyes, he's still acting as a vice president. He's acting as vice president Joe Biden under the Obama administration. That's a big problem for me. The other big problem that I have is the fact that he seems to have lost that fight. Like the his, uh, it, I don't feel like he's fighting for the American people. That and that bothers me because I think that he he talked a big game around November. You see, you know, he said he was going to stick up for the little guy. He was going to, he, he understood it. He was from Scranton, you know, which is Appalachia. So obviously we thought this is going to be great. It's the electric city. Yeah, that is true. Uh, Which, how do you know that? That's well, have you, you don't, you don't watch the office. I watched, I've watched the entire series. Really? Yeah. Oh, you didn't get my reference that one time. They said, I don't, I wouldn't get it. Well, that was apparently before quarantine or sometime because I watched it like oh. throughout all of like July or August. Okay, that's probably why. Anyway, I put right. that what in the, the episode. <laughs> we 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 did the whole like Scranton. What the electric city? Okay, I don't know. 
Uh, anyway, uh, it is the Electric City, and ignorant. You know, I, <laughs> I think people thought that Joe Biden would be more electric. Uh, he has not been. To me, he's been uh, very. <laughs> he's wow. He's been, <laughs> he has been uh, very consumed with. Obviously, he doesn't like what what President Trump did, so he's been you know undoing that. Uh, but to me, he hasn't created any new policy that's that's monumental. Yes, he has, you know, been a part of the the what is it, the American Rescue Plan or what a Rescue America Plan, whatever it is. But even that's not going very well. Uh, it's not going to pass the Senate the way that that the House passed it. Uh, to me, he hasn't been vocal enough. He has not been, uh, you know, the leader that I think a lot of people thought he would be. And if he doesn't if he doesn't change that, then I'm not really sure how. He, you know, uh, his reelection chances, you know, obviously we're looking down the road, but I think it's fair to say if he continues on the same path, it's just like kind of, uh, here's the thing, Donald Trump, right? We obviously, uh, were worried about Donald Trump, like tweeting too much and stuff like that with Joe Biden. My opinion, we don't hear from Joe Biden enough, especially on some of these bigger topics, you know? And the fact is, I know that people have been talking about, uh, things that he's, uh, been doing with, uh, you know, with reestablishing war and attacking places, which obviously not a great look for him, especially because uh, a lot of it wasn't, isn't super needed. Uh, but that being said, he still has a long time before the presidency is over. He has a lot that he can do. Uh, but in my opinion, I know that there's going to be people who disagree. The, the first, uh, two months or uh, month and a half of the, you know, the Joe Biden presidency has not been good. And uh, it, to me, has been a huge disappointment. That's interesting. Um, I, I don't know if I agree or disagree. Uh, I mean, I think the, I think they initially dropped the ball majorly when they were campaigning on $2,000 checks and now are saying 1400 and I think that puts personally, I think it's terrible. And, and, and the two senators from Georgia kind of look like they've got egg on their face. Cause that was one of their whole campaign promises. Yep. So it's really shitty for them. I not going to say that this is going to have anything to do with this reelection because a lot of that is going to hinge on whether saying, we get back to normal life or not. I'm saying if he continues on the same path, not okay. obviously the, Obviously, the first 40 days are not shouldn't define his presidency, but we do all know that the first 100 days of a president's term is it's a big deal that it is it sets the landscape. Well, it's 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 um it is it's it's this kind of made up thing, but it's made into a big deal. And I think for them, so I think on the actual management of, of the virus and the disaster has gone well for them in that there, we have now a stable, competent government in place, which is good. But I do think that they approached the relief bill wrong and that they tried to make compromises with the Republicans when they knew that that was a fruitless effort. I think that they're limited in some respects with the Congress as it is right now, they have a very, they have an extremely narrow majority in both chambers. A lot of people don't talk about the house. Uh, they only have like a five seat majority there. And so the midterms are going to be really tight and very important for them. But I think that you're right. He needs to be more vocal and he needs to actually 
start campaigning heavily for what he believes in or what, not what he believed, but like what he promised. I don't know. I'm still sort of on the fence about things because I just don't know how to judge the first 40 days at the moment. I think a lot, I think it's going to really depend on what gets in this relief package and when it passes and what comes from that. And then what the next move is. Because that's going to be yeah. another really big, important thing. Is it going to be immigration? Is it going to be infrastructure? If he has an infrastructure bill that he gets people on board with, I think it's going to be tough because it's going to be more spending, but that could be a game changer for them. But it's all like, you know, the one thing that they're going to make, I think that they're starting to make a mistake on is turn, returning to like Washington as normal. And Joe Biden campaigned on being, you know, an FDR style president, big, bold, investments in actual people and we need to see that and right now we haven't and i don't know that there's many signs that we're going to get that kind of boldness which is not terribly surprising i don't think like joe biden was never super progressive or anything but these are using his words so well i mean okay so uh i don't we never really get in well we we talked about a little bit but like uh, me, I'm a centrist Democrat, right? Like I know that some people think uh, maybe I'm farther left than I am, which is, it's not true. Um, you more than welcome to look up any of my political views that I've talked about in the past. Uh, but I'm a centrist Democrat. And to me, part of what, part of one of the issues that I have with the current Democratic Party is that I think they're trying to push too many things into one bill. That's been a problem for me because I think it, it hurts the American people because it continues to delay things. Like, for instance, I love the fact that the New River Gorge is a national park. Did it need to be in the first relief bill? Probably not. I mean, it just takes it to me. It takes this, the seriousness out of things. Now, I'm going to get flack for this, and it's I hope so. I, I actually I'm used to it by now. Um, I personally and Chuck, I know that you disagree with me, so I will say that up front. Chuck disagrees with me. He does not agree with me. I Thanks for speaking for me. <clears throat> well, I think I think you'll know why in a second. Uh, and I was saying that in the sense of like we, I've heard you talk about this. That's the other reason. I'm not okay. just saying that. Um, I think, uh, in my opinion, that they should remove the minimum wage hike out of the COVID relief bill. I think they're going to have to. Because because the parliamentarian, like I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but the Senate yeah. parliamentarian basically said that they couldn't have it for budget reconciliation, and they can overrule the parliamentarian. But Joe Manchin has already said that he's not going to vote for something if they overrule the parliamentarian. So I, to me, it's a non-issue. Yeah, I, I see that too. Uh, I think the problem is that the House doesn't. I'm not sure what the House is going to do on that. The House, I, the House should absolutely. The House passed the minimum wage in it. Which they I should, did. but it's not going to get. I mean, they don't really have to give a shit because they're not bound by the same rules as the Senate. And let, I mean, well, let's pretend too that let's say the parliamentarian changes. You know, they they say never mind, you can do it, right? It still doesn't pass. Republicans aren't going to support it. Joe Manchin's not going to support it. I think, and obviously, I'm going to take flack for this. That's fine. Uh, personally, I think at the very end of the day that. $15 will not be passed right now. I just don't, I don't see it happening. 
But I do think that the two sides will come to an agreement on a higher minimum wage. I don't know what that is. I would assume somewhere in the middle, I'm going to guess $12 because Republicans are 11, Democrats are at 15. I'm going to go with 12 or 12.50 right there in the middle. I think that that's probably what they're going to agree on. But the more that we continue to delay uh, these unemployment benefits, the stimulus checks, I, I get it. Like there obviously has been a fight for minimum, uh, you know, higher minimum wage. And I don't disagree with that. What I disagree with is that there's one topic holding this bill up and it is that one. And it worries me because, you know, as somebody who thinks that we should do the things for the greater good, I'm not sure that this one topic outweighs the rest of the bill. And, and that's what I think uh, is frustrating right now for me uh, looking at the bill itself. I understand that raising minimum wages is very, very serious and you know, it needs to happen. I don't know if it, if it's going to happen this bill. And I think in my opinion, I think it's going to continue to delay it and it's going to hurt more people. That's just, obviously that's an outsider's uh, take, but uh, my wife and I talked about that, that today and uh, you know, we were worried about it. I, I mean, I see your point. I think, First of all, I don't buy that Republicans are willing to actually come to an agreement on it. I think they're going to say that because they want to come off as faux populists for the working people so they can set themselves up in case Trump doesn't run in 2024. But I I just I think that the parliamentarian ruling kind of just snuffs out actually having that provision in the bill. What they're going to try to do is they're going to try to pass taxes um, tax penalties against larger corporations who don't pay at least a $15 minimum wage. I don't know if that will work or not. I'm not well-versed enough in it to tell you either way. I I don't – see, the thing is, is for me, I don't believe that the $15 minimum wage would be the only thing holding up the bill. I think if that weren't in it, then the Republicans would find another reason to try to hold things up, or Joe Manchin would probably find another reason to – want to exercise more weight in the decision i think what they're going to have to do is just pull the trigger on something once they get mansion's vote and cinema and just go with it but i i I mean to me and this has been the case with a lot of what republicans have done i can't speak for joe mansion but if it's not one thing it's something else typically with them so if it's not that it'd be state and local funding or something Maybe that's a cynic's take. Maybe it's not. I don't blame the Democrats for wanting to try to go big on it because you get one shot with budget reconciliation, and they have a very narrow majority, so they have to do what they can with what they have, and this is the only way they can bypass a filibuster. And so anything else they work on, basically, in the Senate needs 10 Republicans, which, good luck. So that's where... I think the problem also just lies in the fact that I think there are a lot of bold promises being made by Democrats in anticipation of getting more Senate seats. They were, I mean, they thought that Maine was in the freaking bag. One, and oh, I mean, I did 100%. too. They thought that South Carolina was a real possibility, that Montana was a real possibility, that Iowa was a real possibility, that Texas was, that North Carolina, North Carolina should have been. And they were looking at maybe like a 52-53. And if there's 52 or 53, you have a whole new ball game. But they don't. And to part of this is dealing with reality that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who do, who often gets overlooked in the whole in the whole like centrist conversation, 
uh, that you have to really appease them in order to get anything through, and that's what sucks. And that's why progressives are going to be pissed off. And I don't blame them, but this is also dealing with the reality, and it's like, you know, you can't direct all your attention and hatred at Democrats when it's one or two that are holding up what the vast majority of the rest of them believe in. That's my whole opinion, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more left than you are, but I'm not like super duper far, far, far left. I get that. I mean, obviously there's that divide in the democratic party between like, you know, you've got your, your farther left and then you do have your centrist, which is the two, you know, obviously the two of the centrists are holding up the, uh, which I don't even know. They're, I don't even know if I consider them centrists anymore. I think they're, they're, you know, a little bit to the right now. Um, but that depends being, on the issue. Yeah. That being said, um, ultimately, I guess my main point is it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. I think Democrats have overpromised and underproduced in a lot of things. And to me, they're like, um, they're like a football team that doesn't have a head coach. And the offense says that it's going to win the game for them. And the defense says it's going to win for the game for them. But then they both just end up losing that. That's the problem that I have right now with the party, because if you look at the things that they're promising, like for instance, student loan forgiveness, right? Like we've been hearing that since the the election, there's been, there's no movement on it. It's, it's, it's moot. Like they just, it's just, no, it's just a stupid debate about Joe Biden, not thinking he has the authority to cancel some of the, and that's just like, it's just stupid. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's become a point where, um, it, it bothers me that we have so many politicians who will, who will tweet and who will talk to the media and say that they support these things. And then, uh, they're not, producing legislation to do it. They're counting on Joe Biden to do it. He's not going to do it. He's made that very clear. Um, and even outside of that, now I do obviously want to say, I think that both parties, um, I know that you said that you don't think the Republicans will come to the table with uh, minimum wage. That, that's probably true, but I'm not sure that Democrats would have come to the table for some of the things that Republicans wanted last time. I think that this is just like, it's sad, but it's going to continue to, people are going to butt heads uh, with, you know, not actually work to help the country. And that sucks. Uh, but I just, I just don't view Republicans as honest operators anymore. Okay. I mean, that, like, yeah. I, I just don't, I mean, name, name one of them, maybe outside of Murkowski and Collins and maybe Romney that, that are honest operators in the Senate right now. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, can you? probably not as much but and in the house it's even worse but let me clarify i also don't think that there are a lot of democrats in the senate that that fall by the same rules either i think there's a lot more than there are republicans but is that because the way that you test it what is that because you agree with what they're saying, though? That's no. It's that's because they didn't vote to overturn a fucking election. That's that's true. That's a pretty fucking big thing that people don't talk about anymore. Is that the a number of Republicans, most of them, voted mm-hmm. to overturn a Democratic election because of politics and because of Donald Trump, and this whole like both sides bullshit is just such an invalid argument. It's such a joke. And look, there's plenty of shitty Democrats, but also put their feet to the fire and then make that decision. 
you know, like put up, put up something for, I don't know, um, debt forgiveness or, or a public option and see, or, or hell for Medicare for all for the ones that campaigned on it and see if they'll actually fucking vote for it. If it's got a chance of passing Republicans, they knew that they like, look, there are some of them that are honest people, but in the Senate, like if you voted to overturn an election, you are not an honest person. You are a fucking traitor to this country. Yeah, and I, I don't want to. I'm I'm not advocating for either party currently, right? Like I'm I'm just saying I'm trying to point out that currently, it, it is my belief, and I think it's the belief of a lot of Americans that neither party, when push comes to shove, is working for the American people, because if they were, a lot of the stuff would already be done or at least proposed. Because I agree with you, if you want to prove the you know how someone really is. Put their feet to the fire, make them prove it. But no one's doing that because they know the answer to it. The problem is, is that especially in the Senate, the House is different because the House, I mean, Democrats in the House have voted from all progressive legislations put forward. The problem is in the Senate is the filibuster insulates people from being able to have to take difficult votes. And if you got rid of the filibuster, boy, that there'd be a lot of Democrats that would have to put up or shut up. And that is a vulnerability for them, Yeah, which is great. And that's how it should be. But I'm just like, my point is that there are plenty of Democrats who are campaigning on the right issues and have proposed legislation on the right issues. Now, a lot of times they'll propose it knowing it's not really going to get anywhere because that's the nature of the Senate. But that I just I'm just not willing to say that well they're both equally bad because one party decided to try to overthrow an election the other one didn't that's a pretty big deal. No, I'm not saying that the parties are equally bad or not. I'm saying that currently I think both sides of, are terrible at legislating. Yeah, and and I mean to your point like I I don't think that any have really fully delivered for the people that that elect and that represent them. I think there is a lot of them that are trying. I do. I actually believe that. Maybe that's naive. But the problem is, is that the nature of the body allows for people that aren't trying to do that to control a lot of what's going on. Yeah, I think, and I'll wrap it up right here. the The big thing that I think uh, the Senate and you know, I specifically the Senate is missing is like, uh, I always think back about Joe Biden and John McCain, right? Like, I think that their story is genuine. They were at each other's throats on the floor of the Senate, but then they actually talked outside of it. And if you look at a lot of bills that Joe Biden wrote, John McCain is in on that bill. Either he amended it, he essentially went to Joe and and came to an agreement to get the you know the other side to to agree to vote for it. That doesn't happen anymore. And from either side, and I get why, but there seems to be. Um, and then I guess is the current population too. There's less discussion on what people are willing to give and what people are willing to give up uh, to get legislation passed because we all know it's it, that's how it works. That I mean that's literally how the American political system has worked since it was created. It's give and take, and I, I think that that's gone. I think there's there are some members that that do, and there's some that don't. But what they do work together on doesn't get a lot of. Yeah, media coverage. Like I was just reading. This is gonna just sound so fucking nerdy. I was reading um, John Tester's book earlier today. John Tester, Democrat from Montana, 
Um, and he talked about how he worked on like probably like six different bills that got passed in the Trump administration with Johnny Isaacson, who was the Republican from Georgia, who was chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee and um, Tester was, I think, ranking member. Uh, and they had a really good relationship. But, but that's because Isaacson was old guard Republican who was not interested in running for president. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to see yeah. that from I, I, Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley. I think you're right. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of bills that, um, you know, people are not willing or, or they're not, not quote unquote important enough for people to know about, you know, that are, that's actually going on in behind the scenes. I just wish we would see legislation um, that is important enough to, to talk about like that. Obviously uh, both parties have to come to an agreement on or, or nothing's going to get done. Well, yeah. So that's status quo at this point. Where nothing does get done. No, I think you're right. I think though, though ultimately, this is my opinion, and maybe it's not shared by many people that the way you do that is get rid of the legislative filibuster, because the house the house passes legislation all the damn time. You know, That's they good. pass HR one. They've got, but that also will show you who the true people are in the house, because the house can vote on something and and know that it won't pass the senate. So. Um, so when you have the real stakes in the game, you find out who's real and who's not. And that, cause like you just don't have the type of majorities in the Senate and then I'll get off this where that's the case now. Like the last time that any party had anywhere close to 60 senators was back in Oh nine after Obama got elected and they barely had it for like three months before Scott Brown won a special election and defeated their Democrat who took Ted Kennedy's seat. Anyway, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, look, well, I, I know that was a, that was probably that was probably my longest beef. Uh, but I think it was a good discussion on what is going on currently in the American political system, and it's a good showing that uh, Chuck and I are not always in agreement. I think it's there's discussions here and there uh, where we have to just talk it out. We got to talk about the issues. With that, we'll close it out. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll have some more, I guess, regular programming next week, probably. But we just kind of took the week off and we winged it. So hopefully you enjoyed. And if you don't, um, hopefully you don't hate us. And you'll be back next week. Thanks.